What I'd like to do in the sermon this afternoon is talk with you about an issue that, you know, the, the Christian world just does not seem to understand, doesn't really seem to care about because they think it's all done away with. In fact, whenever you look into uh, <clears throat> research books, even theologians, theologians and biblical scholars don't seem to understand the subject that I want to talk about today. But I want to tie it into the feast, because the feast talked about God's kingdom. And what I want to talk about today is going to become policy in the coming kingdom of God that we need to understand, because if we don't understand it, we're not going to be able to administer the policy. You know, the Bible gives us a number of guidelines. In Proverbs 1.7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning or the foundation or the starting point of knowledge. And if we go to the Bible to find guidelines and then build on those guidelines, we're going to be building along the mind of God. You know, my background has been health education and things like that. And when you go through the Bible, you go through both the Old Testament and the New Testament, you can come up with what is going to be the basis, I believe, of the health policy, the approach to health in the coming kingdom of God. You can do this with entertainment. You can do this with family relations, building on the guidelines that the Bible gives us. What I want to talk about today <clears throat> is biblical economics, the biblical approach to economics and finance. And we call it tithing. But, you know, I had a number of visits in the years that I was pastoring out in the field, and it was not uncommon for... <coughs> quote, unquote, Christian people to ask the question, what, what is this tithe that you talk about? They, they don't even know how to pronounce it. It's so foreign to them. And that, that, that question was asked on numerous occasions. Well, what is this tithe? I've never heard of this before. Well, it's in the Bible. It's a tithe, I tell them. Oh, 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 that. But then they don't understand it. What I'd like to do is talk about tithing today, <clears throat> but I'm, I'm calling it biblical economics because that's really what it is. Over the years, I've heard people say, well, you know, here's what I think about tithing. And it's basically personal. And yet I think we need to think about it in a bigger picture in terms of public policy and what the world is going to be doing. And our challenge of teaching the world about an economic system that the world does not understand today. Just to illustrate a little bit the confusion that the world has about the subject, and I would invite you to do some similar comparisons. You know, get out some of your research books, uh, Bible handbooks, look up tithing, and notice what they say, notice what they don't say, and notice what they get mixed up got a book at home entitled The Oxford Companion to the Bible, and this is a more liberal theological approach to things. They mention that the chief purpose of the tithe is to maintain the priests and the Levites, which is correct. They say another tithe is to be spent in Jerusalem to subsidize the city and the temple and the priests. Now, what he's talking about is second tithe, but they get it totally wrong in terms of what it's supposed to do. The second tithe, they say, is for the orphans. Well, that's not correct either. But this is a scholarly book talking about the subject. They refer to uh, Luke, 4, Luke 11, 41 and 42. We'll look at those a little bit later. 
But notice what they say. They say what Jesus states in Luke 11 suggests that some churches tithe for the poor. Suggests that some churches tithe for the poor. But the implication is some churches didn't. In Matthew 23, 23, a similar statement, it says, um, this source says, this verse suggests the custom of tithing was preserved somehow. The Christ statement is suggesting that the custom of tithing was preserved somehow, but they don't know how, and they don't know what it was. They also make the statement that the New Testament nowhere explicitly requires tithing to maintain the ministry or a place of assembly. Well, there is no statement in the New Testament that says, Thou shalt do this. But as we will see today, the New Testament points us in a very definitive direction when you understand the scriptures. Halley's Handbook makes some interesting statements. They say there were three tithes, a Levitical tithe, the festival tithe, and for the poor every three years. But some think there was only one tithe. And somehow you divvied this up. Uh, and I've heard people in the church explain, well, I, I think there's only one tithe. Well, they were reading Halley's Handbook. And they're picking up a minority opinion. Halley's Handbook also indicates that uh, tithing was used long before Moses. So it was not part of the... Uh, the Mosaic Law originally predates that. Erdman's Bible Handbook has some interesting comments. It says that the first tithe was to go to the Levites. The second, now listen to this carefully, the second tithe was an occasion for enjoyment and generous sharing with others. There's no reference to the Holy Days. It's just a time for rejoicing. They can read that. They understand that. And it's a time for sharing with others. Well, they get some verses mixed up with the third tithe. So here are basically authoritative uh, sources that give you uh, different ideas. They don't agree. And yet they're supposed to understand the Bible. So it's not surprising the world doesn't understand. You know, the world cannot explain. In fact, many theologians cannot explain with clarity the teaching of tithing because they don't understand the system. We have been given an understanding of the system for a reason. We are going to be the teachers in the coming kingdom of God, explaining a way of life, explaining the economic foundation of a society, a new society, in the coming kingdom of God. Why do we understand? Why doesn't the world understand? Turn to a couple of scriptures. Just to notice, in Psalm 111, Psalm 111, it's an interesting statement, but it explains why the world doesn't understand and why we do. Psalm 111, verse 10, says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the starting point. It's where you start from. And if you fear the Lord, you're going to be doing what God commands us to do. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. Once you start tithing and you learn how to do it and what it's for, you begin to understand what it's all about. But if you're not doing it, you're not going to understand it. 
a good understanding of all those who do his commandments and his praise endures forever. Psalm 119, verse 99 and 100 says pretty much the same thing. David says, I have more understanding than my teachers. Some of us are going to have a chance to sit down with some theologians in the kingdom of God and explain to them how you pronounce the word (laughs) T-H-I-T-H-E. Tithe. (laughs) No, it's a tithe. What's it for? We'll be able to explain that. Again, it's, it's not so much a personal thing. It is personal. As one person commented to me, you're going to talk about the most sensitive part of a person's body in the sermon today, their wallet. (laughs) but I think if we can look at it in the big picture in terms of public policy why God instituted it and how it's going to be carried out David said I have more understanding than my teachers for your testimonies your instructions your laws are my meditation David said oh how I love your law it's my meditation all day long I think about it I learn how to apply it I have more understanding than my teachers. Your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients. Why? Because I keep your precepts. I keep your precepts. I do what you've instructed us to do. What I want to do in the sermon today is talk about tithing, what the Bible reveals about it. Because you know you cannot administer a policy that you don't understand. You can't administer a policy that you don't know what the Bible says. So we need knowledge. We need understanding. We need to understand why God set up the tithing system, what it's for, and what is involved in keeping the tithing or following the tithing system, which is basically character and faith. Because we are responsible for doing these things. I'd also like to keep in mind, turn to Isaiah chapter 2. We normally read this at the feast, but if we can put this discussion of biblical economics, tithing, in this context. A lot of people today that are professing Christians don't bother with the Old Testament. They think everything in the Old Testament has been done away with. And yet when we read in Isaiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days, at the end of the age, when Christ returns to set up the kingdom of God on this earth, that the mountain of the Lord's house, the government of God, shall be established on top of the mountains over all the other nations, and it will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will flow to it or look to it. How do they do it in Jerusalem? What's the example that we should follow? Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Let's go up to Jerusalem. Let's learn how to do things God's way. To the house of the God of Jacob, he will teach us his ways. Now, as we receive a crown and we reign as kings and priests in Jerusalem, this is going to be our job of explaining to the world God's way, God's approach, uh, explaining the policies of the government of God. He will teach us his ways, we shall walk in his paths, for out of Zion, out of Jerusalem, shall go forth the law. The instructions of God is going to go out from there. And as kings and priests, we will probably go out from there. 
you know, I mentioned at the feast whenever I read some of the first, from some of the first times I read the promises in Revelation 3 about being a priest in the temple of God and will never go out from there. You know, my concept was they're going to lock me in a room. I'm going to stand there like a pillar <laughs> and never be allowed to go out. But I didn't have a proper understanding. We will be going out as ambassadors, as teachers, as leaders, explaining to people God's way of life and the benefits of doing that. But out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So this is what is going to be going forth from Jerusalem. Notice in Isaiah 11, verse 9. Again, a prophecy of the future. It says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. We are going to play a role in spreading a knowledge of God's way the whole way around the world. Is there any place you haven't been you'd like to go to? You could probably volunteer. <laughs> I'd like to go to uh, Tahiti and explain to the Tahitians God's way of life. might take me six months to explain everything. <laughs> and then after that, I'd like to go someplace else. You know, God is the giver of every good gift. I've used this example before that uh, when I closed to college in Ambassador College in 78, I went back to school for two years. I spent two years at Loma Linda University and I did a minor in international health and spent probably, I don't know, three, four seminar classes with young people from all over the world, from Haiti, from Africa, from India. And as they were discussing where they were from, I, I kept thinking in the back of my mind, I'd like to go there. I'd like to go there. I'd like to go there. One of the places I had really hoped to go, they talked about Kenya, the highlands of Kenya. And I thought, yeah, I'd really like to go there sometime. God gives us our dreams. I've been there six, seven, eight, nine times. <laughs> you know, partly, you know, basically, it was my job <laughs> to go there. In fact, when Carl McNair asked me to get down there the first time, he said, he said, Doug, we need somebody to go to Africa. Now, you don't have to go if you don't want to. He said, this could be dangerous. I said, Carl, I would love to go. You would. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, God gives us our dreams. And I would encourage all of you to dream a little bit. Where would you like to go? What would you like to change? As we learn about the customs and the problems around the world, pray about some of those things. You know, ask God for opportunities and tell him you'd like to change some things. You'd like to straighten some things out. Somebody's going to get a chance to straighten out the economic system of this world. And capitalism has its benefits, but it also has a lot of problems as do many other sources of economic ideas. But the earth is going to be full, we read here, of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And we have been called to prepare to do these things, to literally fill the world and explain to human beings all around the earth God's way of life. Acts 3, verses 19 through 21. Mr. Armstrong used to talk about these verses as being pivotal verses in the Bible. This is where everything is going to change, and to change in a positive way. Acts chapter 3, beginning verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing, the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus Christ, 
who was preached to you before, whom the heavens must receive until the times of restitution of all things, when everything is put back right. See, we're having a chance today to learn how to do things right. The biblical approach to health, the biblical approach to economics, the biblical approach to education. You know, some people have kind of jumped up and down. Why are they starting a living university, Mr. Armstrong? would never allow that. No, he only started three colleges. <laughs> you know, people, some people lack vision today. It appears that we're going to have a chance to lay the foundation for an educa- educational system that may go right over into the world tomorrow using some of the latest technology that we didn't have at Ambassador College years ago. A chance to change the world. The early apostles were accused of turning the world upside down. I mentioned this in the sermon in Myrtle Beach about turning the world right side up. My granddaughter came up and said, Grandpa, how do you turn the world upside down? (laughs) She said, how do you do that? It's round. (laughs) But this is our opportunity. And if we can see the subject of tithing in the big picture, not just my personal wallet, you can't have that, and you want it, and whatever. But think about it in terms of public policy and how the world is going to change and benefit. But these are some of the principles that we read about what we're going to be doing. But let's learn first, you know, let's study, let's look at the subject of tithing. What does the Bible say about it? What is revealed in the scriptures? And what doesn't the world understand? And are there things that we need to understand more clearly? Hallie's handbook got it right when it said that there are three tithes. One is a Levitical tithe to the Levites, a second tithe for the festivals, and a third tithe for the poor. I think it's important to point out at the very beginning, the first tithe is for the Levites. It's basically for doing the work of God. In the ancient world, it was for maintaining the temple, the singers, the people that served in the temple. Uh, The second tithe was for keeping the festivals, and the third tithe was for the poor. But let's look at what the Bible reveals about these subjects. We start in Genesis chapter 14. And notice this was prior to the giving of the law to Moses. It was prior to the covenant that was made at Sinai. In Genesis chapter 14, verse 21, we have Abraham who basically liberated his uh, nephew Lot, they re- were able to obtain, get back uh, things that had been stolen from them. In verse 18, it says, uh, Melchizedek, king of Salem, who the Bible indicates in the New Testament was Jesus Christ. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham or Abram of God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be the God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. In other words, God has blessed you, enabled you to get back the things that were stolen from you. And he, Abram or Abraham, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe of all. The word here in the Hebrew is maser, M-A-A-S-E-R, and it means a tithe or a tenth. So here was Abraham giving back to God a tenth of all that he had. 
So here's the principle of tithing spelled out in the early chapters of Genesis, long before Moses uh, ever made a covenant with God, where God made a covenant with Moses and the Israelites. In uh, Genesis 28, Abraham apparently taught his children these things and this principle, again, long before the covenant made with the Israelites. So somebody said, well, that the tithing is just old covenant stuff. No, it's in the scriptures long before the covenant was made with the Israelites. Genesis 28. This is where, Mo, where Jacob had a dream about a ladder. God makes promises then to Jacob. And then Jacob dedicates a stone in verse 22. And this stone, which I have set as a pillar, a memorial, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth, a tithe, to you. Talking to God. It's a different word here, but it means a tenth or a tithe. The word is in Hebrew is asar, A-S-A-R. So we have Abraham and Jacob tithing prior to the law of Moses. Now, if we look at the covenant that God made with the Israelites and what was included in that, let's go to Leviticus chapter 27. Leviticus 27, some of the stipulations in the law of Moses. Leviticus 27, it talks about a number of uh, principles to use in dealing with various issues uh, in the early part of this chapter. But in verses 30 and 31, this is all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land, of the seed or of the land, or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's, or is the eternal's, belongs to God, and it's holy to the Lord. It's holy to God. It's not just something to play with. It's holy to God. And then to emphasize the importance of this, if a man wants to redeem any of his tithes, if you have two bank accounts, one runs low, and you decide, well, I've got some over there, it says... Uh, if any man wants to redeem or use some of his tithe, he shall add one-fifth to it. Or would you add 20% back? That's pretty high interest. But the implication is you don't want to pay back 20%. So the idea is don't borrow from that. But I've talked with people, and you probably have too, and you may have been tempted over the years. Well, you know, I, I need some extra money, and I've got this big chunk of money here, and I don't want to just waste it. You know, I don't want to just keep it until the, the feast. I may need it now. But then if you use it for that, then you don't have it for the feast. I remember one time that uh, I used too much of my second tithes for the early holy days and ran out of money at the feast and ate hot dogs when I ate because <laughs> I didn't have enough to finish. I hadn't used it wisely. But the principle here is the tithe is God's. The tithe belongs to God. It's, it's not for us. It's, it's God's. So there's a character issue here. You know, will we give God what is his, or do we, you know, well, i, I got to hang on to this. I don't trust God. See, faith in, comes into that too. But these are the instructions that we find. Let's go to Numbers chapter 18. Here again is an aspect of the Mosaic law. But it fills in information about the tithing system. But if you don't believe in the Old Testament, then you don't pay any attention to these verses. 
But you can understand the tithing system by going here, going there, every place that it's talked about, Numbers 18. In fact, in my Bible, this is labeled Tithes for the Sport of the Levites as a subtitle. In verse 21, Behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tithes of Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they will perform, which they perform the work of the tabernacle of meeting. So the people that set up and took down the tabernacle, the singers in the tabernacle, the people that uh, took care of the offerings, this was their uh, means of support. Hereafter the children of Israel shall not come near the tabernacle of meeting lest they bear a sin. But the Levites shall perform the work of the tabernacle of meeting and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a statute forever. Verse 24, For the tithes of the children of Israel which they offer up as a heave offering to the Lord I have given to the Levites as an inheritance. And the reason they were given this as an inheritance they weren't given a physical inheritance like the other tribes. And so this, this was their job. This was what they were supposed to do. The Levites were the civil government administrators. They were the teachers as well as people that worked in the temple. So we need to understand these things. This was God's way of remunerating people who carried out his work. Down in verse uh, 25, 26, then the Lord spoke to Moses, Speak thus to the Levites and say to them, When you take from the children of Israel the tithes which I have given you from them as your inheritance, then you will offer up a heave offering to the Lord, a tenth of the tithe. In verse uh, 30, 31, let's go to 31. It says, you may eat in any place, you and your households, for it is your reward for your work in the temple. So the tithe, first tithe, was to go to the Levites. In uh, Second Chronicles is an interesting scripture. Chapters 29 through 31 talk about the reforms in Judah under King Hezekiah. You know, people had drifted away and kings had drifted away from understanding the laws of God and applying the laws of God. Chapter 29, verse 1 says, Hezekiah became king when he was 25. Now, here's a 25-year-old young man begins to restore a knowledge of the laws of God, restored the knowledge of uh, restored worship in the temple. But here's a young man, 25 years of age, pulls off a major reform, bringing the nation back on track. When he was 25 years old, he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abijah. So apparently his mother had an input, an impact on him growing up, pointing him in the right direction. There's a book out years ago, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Powerful impact that mothers and fathers can have on their children. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. The first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them, carried out the rubbish, began worship services. 
focus people back again on the holy days. Verse 30, or excuse me, chapter 30, verse 1. Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah, inviting even the, the ten tribes in the north. Come back and worship in Jerusalem for the Passover. <clears throat> Notice their response. In verse 10, it says, So the runners passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, Israelite areas, as far as Zebulun. But they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. You think we're coming back to Jerusalem? You're nuts. We've got our own thing going up here. But here was Hezekiah reaching out to them, inviting them back. They wouldn't have anything to do with them. In chapter 31... Verse 3, the king also appointed a portion of his possessions for the burnt offerings, for the morning and evening burnt offerings, the burnt offerings for the Sabbaths and the new moons and the set feasts. So reinstituting uh, the feasts and the Sabbaths. Moreover, he commanded the people who dwelt in Jerusalem to contribute support. That's basically talking about the tithe again, as we will see in the next verse. Support for the priests and the Levites, that they may devote themselves to the law of the Lord, teaching the law of the Lord. As soon as the commandment was circulated, the children of Israel brought in, a, in abundance the first fruits of the grain and wine, oil and honey, and all the produce of the field, and they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. So here was Hezekiah not only reinstituting the worship in the temple, uh, reinstituting and focusing people again on the Sabbath and the holy days, but also on the tithing system to make the whole thing work. So this is what he did in restoring and putting Israel back on the right track. In Nehemiah chapter 10, this happened once again down the road after the, Israel, after the uh, people of Judah came back from the captivity in Nehemiah. <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 10, and about verse 37. Nehemiah chapter 10. Again, coming back from captivity, they had to set up the system, get it going again. In verse 37 talks about, uh, actually, verse 35, we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of the trees year by year to the house of the Lord. Verse 37, to bring the first fruits of our dough, our offerings, fruit of all kinds of trees, new wine and oil to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of God, and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites, for the Levites should receive the tithes of all our farming communities. And the priest and the descendant of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of God, to the rooms of the storehouse. It was interesting living and traveling around England over there. Because I ran into this several places. Uh, one of the fellows I visited lived in an old, what I thought was a farmhouse. But the name of the farmhouse was the Tithe Barn where the tithes were brought from that community and put in a building called the Tithe Barn. Many people in England would have no idea what that is today. Probably wouldn't know how to pronounce it. Oh, the Tithe Barn. <laughs> <laughs> but this was the system. And some people say, well, this is all Old Testament stuff. 
And the New Testament doesn't say anything about it. Well, let's read the New Testament. Let's notice a couple of scriptures in Matthew 23, 23. Jesus was talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. Notice what he says. Notice what he doesn't say. And he's upbraiding these people, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Matthew 23, verse 23. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you pay tithe on mint and anise and cumin. Now, these are very tiny seeds, so you're counting these things out by a microscope. Nine of these little seeds, and every tenth one I give to the priest with a microscope. Now, this is a legalistic approach that they had. He didn't condemn them for paying tithes. He said, You tithe on mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Now, he didn't say they were wrong in tithing. He just said, you do that, but you don't do things that are every much as, as important. These you ought to have done. They, they, you should be tithing, he said. But then you also need to be focusing on justice and mercy and faith. And this is the statement that uh, the Oxford Companion to the Bible says that... Uh, this verse suggests the custom of tithing was preserved somehow because Christ is not knocking it. He's just saying you should have done that. You should be doing that. But then there are other things you need to be doing. Go to Luke chapter 11, verse 41 through 44, which Luke's account of pretty much the same thing. In verse... Uh, <clears throat> 37 says he spoke as he spoke a certain Pharisee asked uh, him to dine with him so he's, he's dealing with scribes and Pharisees again in verse 41 it says but rather give alms of such things as you have then indeed all things will be clean to you woe to you Pharisees you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by the justice of the love of God these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. In other words, Christ is saying you should be tithing. That's fine. But you also need to do these other things. So Christ did not do away with the, the, um, the principle of tithing. He said you should be doing that, but then you also need to be doing these other things. If we look also at um, in the writings of Paul, because Paul supposedly, you know, he straightened everything out. You got rid of all the stuff you don't need to do. But go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's talking about a system of support. <clears throat> you might want to read the whole chapter, study it on your own. Beginning in verse 1, he says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ? And he's establishing his credentials. Are you not my work in the Lord? Verse 4, he says, Do we not have... Uh, do we have no right to eat and drink? Now, what he's talking about here, check it up in some other sources, at the expense of the church. In other words, do we not have a right to support while we're doing our work? That's really what he's talking about. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, or do we have to be celibate monks you know, up on a mountaintop someplace? Uh, he's just talking about certain rights or privileges. Or is it only Barnabas and I that have no right to refrain from working? In other words... Uh, we're the only ones that don't need to be supported. We're just you know, kind of the tail end of things. Down in verse 14, it says, Even so, the Lord... Let's just back up one verse before that. 
13. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple? And I think some of the commentaries even bring out, even in pagan temples, the priests are able to be supported for their work. And those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar. But he was also aware that in the Old Testament, we read in Numbers 18, that the Levites were supported in their work. So this is what Paul is referring to also. Even so, so here's Paul taking an Old Testament tradition and applying it in the New Testament. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel so that they can devote themselves to doing what needs to be done. So this was the system that God set up. Then Paul brings out, uh, you know, even though I have this right, he said, I haven't used it. I've worked with my own hands because this is how I wanted to do things. Uh, Down in verse 18, what is my reward then that when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. I don't want to take advantage of anyone. So Paul was going above and beyond, preaching for free, working with his own hands. Uh, Again, you might want to check some of these things out on your own. Uh, In... I think it's Acts chapter, no, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Or is it 2 Corinthians? Let's just look quickly. Chapter 4, where it talks about, um, maybe it's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul talks about he was working with his own hand. So he kind of explains what he did and how he operated. First Corinthians 4.12 says, As we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure. But Paul was working with his own hands in order to provide substance so that he could be able to preach. If you go to Acts chapter 18, we see more clearly how Paul operated. Now, Paul was not paying for internet time. He was not paying for television stations. He was basically getting enough money to eat and uh, it appears he lived with other people. But in Acts chapter 18, verses 2 and 3, beginning verse 1, after these things Paul departed from Athens, went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. Because he was of the same trade... He stayed with them and worked for the occupation. They were tent makers, so they worked together. Paul was working in his own hands to generate enough funds to be able to travel and travel around. But in 1 Corinthians 9, we just read where he had a right. He said, look, I've got a right to live of the gospel, but I'm not even using that because I want to make the gospel available to you free of charge. But Paul recognized that there was a right that he could apply to uh, and follow, but he didn't choose to do that. But this is what we find in the New Testament. Paul knew that that principle applied, but he chose not to follow that, not to use it in his own personal situation. So the New Testament does refer to uh, a first tithe. 
for the ministry and doing the work of God. Let's look next at a second tithe for the festivals. Notice what the Bible has to say about it. And this we do find in the Mosaic Law, but we also find it referred to in the New Testament, although many people read over that. In Deuteronomy chapter 12 and Deuteronomy chapter 14, we find reference to another tithe. Let's start with chapter 12. And these are scriptures we need to be able to use to explain to people the law of God and the system of tithing and how it works and why it was instituted. In chapter 12, verse 5, it says, But you seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his habitation. And there you shall go, and there you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, and your tithes and heave offerings in your hand, your vowed offerings and your free will offerings. So free will offerings are different from a tithe. You know, in Protestant churches, they talk about free will offerings. Well, the New Testament talks about free will offerings, but it also talks about tithes. They're different things. They're different things. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand. Verse 11 says, Then there will be a place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, heave offerings, and so on, and you shall rejoice before the Lord. So we understand that uh, where God places his name is going to be a festival site, a feast site. The world doesn't understand that because they don't keep the holy days. This doesn't make sense to them. Deuteronomy 14. Again, talking primarily here about the second tithe, but also the third tithe is mentioned. Verse 22, you shall surely tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. So tithing is done every year. You shall eat before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses to make his name abide, the tithe of your grain, your wine, your oil, the firstlings of the flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord God always. The journey is too long. You turn it into money. Take that with you. Uh, verse 26, you shall spend that money for which you, your heart, for whatever your heart desires, for oxen and sheep. And this is basically to eat, not to buy a new team of oxen for your, your farm. Uh, remember one year a guy bought a new Corvette at the feast because that was what his heart desired. But that's not exactly the way you keep the feast. You're buzzing around town in a new Corvette. <laughs> but you spend it for whatsoever your heart desires to rejoice before the Lord. You know, the first tithe and second tithe have to be different because the first tithe was to go to the priests and the Levites for the functioning of the temple. You couldn't eat what was supposed to go to them. Here is talking about a tithe that, that you eat, that you rejoice with. It's different from a first tithe. And people that have, I've heard comment, well, I think there's just one tithe and you just divide it up however you want to divide it up. No, it doesn't work that way. It was a first tithe for basically doing the work of God, a second tithe for keeping the feasts. Then in verse 28 and 29, at the end of every third year. So here's a tithe that is done every three years. And it contrasts then with what is said in verse 22 where you tithe year by year. But every third year you shall bring out the tithe of your produce, 
of that year stored up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no portion of inheritance with you, the stranger and the fatherless, orphans, and the widow are within your gates, may come and eat and be satisfied. That the Lord your God may bless you. There's going to be a blessing for doing these things. And all the work which your hand has to do. So the second tithe is talked about here, about eating it uh, at a place where God sets his name. You eat it before the Lord and you rejoice. And learning to spend a tenth of your income primarily at the feast is a challenge. You know, somebody say if you're you're earning say say if you're earning hundred thousand dollars, you've got ten thousand dollars to spend at the feast. What are you gonna do with that? Eat the biggest steaks I can get down. <laughs> I had a visit one time with a guy. He said, I'm a vegetarian. I said, well, you know, the Bible doesn't command you to be a vegetarian. Well, I, I just do it. You know what he had at the feast? Caveman steak. <laughs> Biggest steak you could find. I don't think he was a vegetarian at heart. <laughs> I think he, he enjoyed eating. <clears throat> But learning to spend our tithe in a wise manner is a challenge. God is able to see our character, to see what we understand, what we don't understand. You know, I've used this example before. The first feast I went to at Jekyll Island, I read the scripture, spend it for whatsoever your heart desires. I had steak for breakfast, steak for lunch, steak for dinner, and steak after an evening service. <laughs> Came home sicker than a dog. <laughs> I thought I was doing it right because I read it in the Bible, but I didn't have the understanding. I lacked the understanding. You know, some people buy themselves expensive feast gifts or whatever, but God wants us to rejoice, and he wants others to be able to rejoice. I think one of the things we did with the boys as they were growing up, I think we bought a dozen corsages, and I gave half a dozen to each one of the boys and told them, go find some of the widows in our church area and give them this right before service and say happy feast. So it was a way of encouraging them to share some of the blessings that we had been given. And then God has an opportunity at the feast to see how we're maturing, what we understand, what we'll do with a financial power that is put into our hand, that we have the opportunity of doing. And just thinking back on the first feast I went to at Jekyll Island, walked into this person's room, and, uh, you know, the top of his dresser was better stocked than the bar downstairs in the, in the lounge. I'm going to, uh, I think it was up uh, to Squaw Valley a couple of years. Walked into the liquor store the night before the feast. Everybody in the church was in there. <laughs> and I just wonder what message that sent to the community up there. All these people with a lot of kids and big Bibles go to the liquor store, first stop in town. There's nothing wrong with having a good bottle of wine or or a liqueur or something like that, but we need to be conscious of the message that we send with these things. I think God has a chance to see, are we learning, are we growing, are we still enthralled with all this money in our pocket that we've got to spend? But the second tithe is an opportunity. I mentioned this, I think, at the feast a couple places, that uh, my understanding of going to the feast early on was... uh, I got to learn to live like a king. I got to get the biggest apartment, the nicest place, eat in the best places, 
so I can be prepared to reign with Jesus Christ. Well, you know, they do this in Africa. <laughs> Somebody gets into a position of power, brings the whole tribe in, takes all the money. And the guy in Kenya that retired as president or was didn't run for president again, he came into office as, from a very poor tribe. He left office as one of the richest men in the world. And Swiss bank accounts and all kinds of other things. Because he was living like a king. When probably half of the people in the country were living on less than a dollar a day. Yet when he left office, they gave him three homes, seven cars, police escorts, and a salary of $250,000 a year in a country where half the people were earning less than a dollar a day. See, he was learning to live like a king. But he's not going to be prepared to rule with Jesus Christ. Now, it's not wrong to, to be able to stay in a nice place at the feast and eat in very nice places. But we need to have a bigger perspective. We need to have a bigger perspective. We're there to learn how to rule as a king and how to use the financial benefits that we have, not only for our benefit, but for the benefit of others. What about the New Testament? What does the New Testament say about these things? Does the New Testament say anything about second tithe? It does, but it's more in an indirect way. Notice in John chapter 7. We're talking about <clears throat> the Feast of Tabernacles. It's called the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles, verse 2, because they were the ones who were keeping it. And this was in Judea. But in Leviticus 23, it talks about the Feast of the Eternal. Not the Jews, not, the Mo not Moses. But notice Jesus says in verse 8 to his brothers, You go up to this feast. I'm not going up basically yet to that feast. He says, My time has not fully come. So he was commanding, instructing his brothers to go to the feast. So if you go to the feast, you've got to have a means of keeping the feast. If they were keeping the feast, then they were needing to save a second tithe for the feast. I mean, that connection should not be difficult to make. Notice in Acts chapter 18, Paul makes a statement. Now, this is 20 or 30 years after the crucifixion in Acts chapter 18. Paul had come to Ephesus, verse 19, uh, and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. So here was Paul saying, i got to be in Jerusalem to keep the feast. If he's keeping the feast, how would he keep it unless he was saving a second time? That's the purpose of saving a second tithe. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul is writing the church at Corinth. So he's writing to the church. Talks about purging out the old leaven. So this is during the days of unleavened bread. Therefore, he says, to the church, let us keep the feast. How do you keep the feasts unless you're saving a second tithe? I mean, that's... That's not rocket science. That's pretty basic. The instructions in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 14, was you're to save a second tithe, go to the place where God places his name, and then rejoice. You can't rejoice in an empty pocketbook. You can rejoice when there's something green in your wallet. 
or a credit card that has not been maxed out. You know, if you're going to be keeping the feast, then we need to be keeping a second tithe. Paul is saying, let us keep the feast. So does the New Testament say anything? Yes, it does say some things. But it doesn't come right out and say, save your second tithe. It just says, keep the feast. What about a third tithe? We read about that and we just read that in Deuteronomy 14, where it talked about the end of every third year. You just save a, a tithe. Now, I ran into a guy at the feast and he said, your next year is my third tithe year and I don't want to miss it. <laughs> and your first reaction, you're, you're nuts. <laughs> but no, he's kept it and he's experienced the blessings. He says, I don't want to miss what my blessings may be this year. Now, if we keep it for selfish reasons, well, I just want to see what the blessings are going to be. <laughs> no, we, we keep it so that we can help others. And then God says he will bless us for doing those things. What about the New Testament? Does it say anything about a third tithe? Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Now Paul is writing to Timothy. Here's how you operate a church, how how you run things. He talks about honoring widows. But in... uh, Verse 9, it says, Do not let a widow under 60 years of age be taken into the number. What kind of number is he talking about? And not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works. If she has brought up children, in other words, a good mother. If she has lodged strangers, she's generous. If she had washed the saints' feet, she's served in church. And she's relieved the afflicted, and she has diligently followed every good work. What does it mean to be taken into the number? You might want to look that up in a number of different translations. It talks about uh, not put on church support, not enrolled for church support, unless she's done these things. A lot of commentaries make that observation that, well, there was support for widows, but they don't talk about where that support would have come from. It obviously had to come from some place. And if you go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 28 and 29, that was what the third tithe was for. That's what it was for, was to support the widows and the orphans. So the New Testament does refer to these things. Down in verse 16, it says, If any believing man or woman has widows, let them, be, let them relieve them. In other words, someone in your own family, take care of them. And do not let the church be burdened. In other words, you take care of your own family. But if somebody else needs to be supported, then that's the church's responsibility. But where does that support come from? God provides the method. He provides the means for doing that. So the Bible does refer to these things. I want to read you from uh, the book of Tobit. The book of Tobit is one of the apocryphal books, one of the intertestamental books in the Old Testament. It's written between the Testaments, Old Testament and New Testament. There's a book called Tobit. If you have a book or a Bible with the apocryphal books in it, you can check this out. Tobit was apparently a Jew of the tribe of Naphtali. 
who apparently lived in uh, Nineveh, was carried there captive during the Assyrian captivity. It appears that the book was probably written in the second century, about an eighth century person. What's interesting about the book of Tobit, it's not a canonical book uh, in the sense that we establish doctrine, it's a historical book. But it gives us an understanding of, the t- of how tithing was viewed in the second century B.C., 200 years before Jesus Christ. And I'm quoting now from the book of Tobit. Uh, I think it's chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. It says, But I alone went often to Jerusalem at the feasts, as it was ordained unto all the people of Israel by an everlasting decree, basically what's written in the, in the Bible, the book of Moses, having the first fruits and tents of increase with that which was first shorn, And them I gave at the altar to the priest. So he gave a tenth to the priest, the children of Aaron. The first tenth part of all increase I gave to the sons of Aaron. So he's talking about a first tithe. Who ministered at Jerusalem. Another tenth part I sold and went and spent it every year at Jerusalem. So here was a second tithe for keeping the feast. And the third I gave to them whom it was meet. Those that had needs. As uh, Deborah, my father's mother, had commanded me because I was left an orphan by my father. So he was familiar with a third tithe because he was an orphan. So here we have a second century description of the tithing system basically as we do it today. A first tithe to the priest, a second tithe for keeping the festival, and a third tithe for the poor. You know, the scholars today in this world are really without an excuse for not understanding the tithing system. And for Halley's handbook or some of the other handbooks to say, well, we we don't know how it happened. (laughs) Uh, We don't know how it was preserved. It was preserved. The Jews preserved a knowledge of that. The early church appears to have preserved a knowledge of that. Paul says, I have a right that I could claim, but I'm not doing that. But he understood Notice another scripture in Hebrews chapter 7. It's an interesting section of scripture. And this was written primarily to the Jews. The author is not named, but it appears to be Paul, because Paul had a background that he could write from, having been trained extensively. Hebrews chapter 7 is talking about the change of the priesthood from Melchizedek to Jesus Christ. But if you read the first uh, nine or ten verses, notice how many times the tenth or tithing is referred to. Because when you read the commentaries, they say, well, this is just talking about the change of the priesthood. (laughs) But why would Paul use a half a dozen examples of tithing in about nine verses if it was just about a change in the priesthood? Let's just read this. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter. So he's referring to the scripture we read in Genesis. Uh, And the kings, and, and, and from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated the king of righteousness. So it does go back and talk about Melchizedek, but it talks about a tenth. The king of peace, verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, remains a priest continually. 
Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. So Paul is going back again to Numbers 18, but talking about this right that they had. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him. So another reference to tithes. Now beyond all contradiction, lesser, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. So in nine verses, there's seven, uh, half a dozen references here to the tenth or tithing. And then Paul mentions here, therefore, if perfection through the Levitical priesthood were through the yeah, therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest? That another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is a change of the law. And most of the commentaries just buzz over this. The change in the law was a change of where the tithes went. No longer to the priests, but it would go to the ministry and those that were doing the work of God. It's just interesting how the, the handbooks and the, the commentaries kind of slide away from these things. They don't address that issue. They talk about the change of the priesthood from uh, the, the temple to Jesus Christ, but then Jesus Christ had ministers. He had a work to be done that needed to be supported. You know, and we all have a stake in the work in that sense because it is our tithes and offerings that make the work go, that make it possible today. And these comments that have been made over the years, you know, the church just wants you to pray and pay. You know, if nobody prayed, <laughs> we'd be in a bad strait. And if we weren't faithful with our tithes, the work wouldn't be done. And that's one of the problems of people splitting off and starting a little group here and a little group there. It, it drains away resources that could be used to focus the work. This is one of the consequences of all these little groups splitting off and going in different directions. You know, the verses that we referred to that Jesus talked about tithing on mint and anise and cumin, the commentaries focus on, well, now who were the Pharisees and who were the Sadducees and who were the scribes? And they get all buggy about those things and totally overlook what Christ was talking about. He said, look, you should be tithing, but don't neglect the mercy and the faith and, and judgment, wise judgment. But the commentaries don't focus on that. They get all buggy on who's the, who's the Pharisees and who's the Sadducees, what they do. Totally miss the point. Totally miss the point. You and I, brethren, have been called to prepare to reign in the coming kingdom of God. The law is going to go forth from Jerusalem. We're going to be explaining the biblical approach to health, the biblical approach to managing the environment. It's going to be fun to sit down with Al Gore and explain it. You know, he got a Nobel Prize for his movie. And it was, he had to share it with, I think it was an intergovernmental uh, interna uh, United Nations group of scientists. And they basically said, you know, he's drawing attention to a very serious issue. But when you read his book and watch his movie, his conclusion is we can solve this <laughs> by passing certain legislation and tax incentives and stuff like that. 
And the biblical approach is we have got to learn to manage the earth as wise stewards, recognizing its limits and not pumping all kind of uh, effluence and whatever else into the atmosphere. The atmosphere can only absorb so much. The oceans can only absorb so much. And then you reach limits and then things begin to happen. And one of the concerns today is we may reach a tipping point where we may not be able to stop things from getting worse. And that's really one of the messages he was trying to get across. We may reach a point where (laughs) things are just going to go and we're not going to be able to stop it. And the only way it's going to be stopped is for Jesus Christ to return and literally begin changing things. But we're going to have an opportunity to help reorient the world in terms of ecology and managing the earth. That is part of our responsibility. We're going to have a chance to straighten out the economics of this world and to point people to the feasts. And some people said, you you guys still keep those old feasts? Is there anybody here that had a bad time at the feast that wants to stop keeping the feast, wants to keep Christmas next year? You know, Santa Claus and red-nosed reindeer have nothing to do with the plan of God. But keeping the feast does. It reminds us of a really exciting future that's coming. You know, if we can keep in mind and come to understand why God has set this system in motion, they talk about, you know, that church just wants three tithes from you. No, we don't. The church needs a tithe to make the work go. God says, You keep a tenth. You keep it. It's for you. And if you don't keep a second tithe, you're robbing yourself. What other religion tells you to do that? (laughs) Keep a tenth of your income for yourself. I remember when my wife and I first got married in Pasadena, we walked down to one of the nice shops there in Pasadena, and I bought her an outfit, and a sales girl, about 18 years old, says, where are you going? Are you going on vacation? I said, we're going to Squaw Valley for a week. And the girl just, ah. Oh. I said, we have to. It's part of our religion. She <laughs> <laughs> blew her mind that our religion would make us go to Squaw Valley of all places. You know, ski resort, mountains, everything up there. We were living in a graduate ghetto on Hurlbut Street in Pasadena. <laughs> With other young couples, a couple people were in the church, but most of them weren't. And I asked this one guy uh, a couple of weeks before we were leaving for Europe for the feast. I said, would you watch our apartment? We're going to be gone for almost two weeks. He said, where are you going? I said, we have to go to Europe. It's part of our religion. He just looked at me like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, why would anyone that understands the feast give it up and go back to Christmas? But, you know, to keep the feast, we need to save our second tithe. If we don't do that, then the feast is not going to be what God intends it to be. God gives us a gift with the second tithe. And then the third tithe is basically for those to take care of those who have physical needs. And Social Security doesn't do it all. SSI doesn't do it all. We have needs every year. Just very quickly, I wanted to mention that we have several letters in the L series. And L61, L62, L63, and L64 that are sent out to people that have questions about the first tithe, second tithe, third tithe, and so on. Let me just read a couple of comments here. The word tithe in Hebrew is maser, or M-A-A-S-E-R, 
meaning a tenth or a payment of a tenth. This increase refers to the adjusted gross income we earn as a result of our labor. As an administrative matter, the church teaches that people may tithe on the net instead of the adjusted gross. You may deduct taxes and related government deductions over which you have no control. And then you pay tithe then on what you're going to be taxed on. It is not necessary to tithe on unearned income, such as Social Security, old age assistance, unemployment compensation, pensions, gifts, uh, you know, inheritance type things, disability or similar types of income. You may give free will offerings. Now, if you want to give a tenth, that's up to you on these things. But we can also give free will offerings on those things. Uh, in terms of second tithe, it talks about uh, is to be used basically for the holy days, the majority of which should be used for the Feast of Tabernacles. Again, it took me a couple of years to learn that I couldn't uh, stay in real nice places and spend all kind of money for Days of Unleavened Bread and Pentecost and then you know, eat hot dogs for the last couple of days of the feast because I didn't save enough. And we've got to think ahead. We've got to plan wisely. Uh, one of the guidelines I remember picked up at Ambassador College years ago, the second tithe is basically, essentially, for going to, staying at, coming back from the feast. It's, it's to use for that period of time, not to buy new furniture and new cars and stuff like that. It's, it's to enjoy the festival. And for those of you that are parents, if you can work in an educational trip uh, or some educational activities during the feast, I think you'll find this will be a bargaining chip in dealing with teachers in school. That if you can tell the teacher, look, my child is going to be out of class for six, seven, eight, nine days, but we are going to be visiting this and this and this. In many cases, I found the teacher said, go, have your child write up a little description of where you were. They're going to learn more with you than they would have staying here. And that's happened several times. But if you think ahead and plan for that, you know, take them to historic places. You know, we took my grandkids to see the, the first settlement there in, in Charleston. Walked around and saw the ramparts and saw what was left of some of the buildings and saw where the mosquitoes lived and <laughs> what it was like during that period of time. Uh, you'll find it will be very worthwhile for you as well as for your children and also dealing with an issue that many parents have to deal with. In terms of uh, self-employment, we have a letter dealing with that. It talks about uh, those persons in business for themselves or farmers should tithe on the income from their business or crops after their operating expense. Not after your living expense, but after your operating expense. Well, I had to buy seed, had to buy gas for the tractor, that type of thing. Uh, so those things can be deducted before you figure your tithe if you're earning you know, your tithe or if you're earning your income by self-employment. But with these letters in the L series, 61 through 64, and you can request these uh, for your own reference if you need to. Uh, we try to explain the administrative aspects of first, second, and third tithe for those that uh, have questions about those issues. But I wanted to cover this subject today, tithing, because it is something that we need to review from time to time. When I was teaching in the area of health education, they recommended that you cover major topics once a year. Because our mind is just, uh, you know, as we get older, we have senior moments. We have those more than once a year. <laughs> 
But we need to be reminded. But if we can keep it in a big picture, it's not just a personal issue with your wallet or my wallet or the church's insatious demand for money, as some people would say. If we can realize we are going to be administering policy, public policy, in the kingdom of God. We're going to be pointing the whole world in the same direction. If you don't believe what you're teaching, people are not going to believe you. If you don't believe it works, they're not going to believe you. That's why we are being given a foretaste, not only of the coming kingdom of God, but we're being prepared, as Mr. Crockett mentioned in the sermon. We are being prepared as a people to rule on this earth and to teach people God's way of life and the benefits and the blessings of doing things God's way. We probably should look at one other scripture. In conclusion, Malachi chapter 3. It's interesting the way God operates and what he's actually revealed. He doesn't stand up there and say, look, you either tithe or you're going to fry. Notice the scripture here, Malachi chapter 3. <clears throat> now, the Israelites were robbing God, and the commentaries understand that. But let's read several verses here together. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. And you say, well, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. Now, this is said at the end of the Old Testament. Uh, you are cursed with a curse. Now, why do we have some of the curses today, including probably the lack of rain? We're not doing things God's way. You know what? We're not keeping his Sabbaths. We're not keeping his holy days. We've got a beautiful Sabbath day today. Great day for football. <laughs> and there are many people at football games today, college football especially. See, we use the Sabbath for different reasons, or for different purposes today. You've robbed me in tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And prove me. Check me out says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessings as there will not be room enough to receive it. This is God's approach. He says, try it. Try it. You'll like it. There will be benefits. Benefits from a first tithe, benefits from a second tithe, and benefits for a third tithe. Remember, I made a comment to some person One of the third tithe years I was going through, I said, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. He said, you're not supposed to get through it on your own. He said, God promises to help you get through it. Remember the first time I did a third tithe year, I was in graduate school. And for some reason, my parents began sending me a check once a month. They didn't know what I was doing. But I was in need. (laughs) And the check stopped about the end of my third tithe year. So God used my parents to bless me in that particular case. But he says, look, uh, prove me. Check me out. See if I don't back up my promises. Now, this is the God that we worship, and this is the God that we have an opportunity to put our faith and trust in to do things God's way. He wants us to teach his ways in the coming kingdom of God. So he's going to want to convince us that his ways really do work, and they're the best way to go. So I wanted to cover some basics with you. I hope that it will be profitable because we are being prepared to change the course of history and to turn this world right side up.